Welcome to What the If. Philip Shane, documentary filmmaker here, and today I'll bring him in in a second, but I am not the only one. I am not the only They're one. They're multiplying. <laughs> <laughs> Life finds a way. Matt, you'll be making a documentary by the time this is over. <laughs> That is uh, Matt Stanley, Professor Matt Stanley of the uh, New York University. And fugitive from justice. Yeah, A fugitive from justice. <laughs> so if you could keep it quiet that I'm here, that'd be helpful. I won't mention that you're in Washington Square. Thank you. Area. Very exciting guest today. He is, as I mentioned, a documentary filmmaker as well. And his name is Kyle Crichton. Kyle, how are you? I'm good. How are you two? Welcome to the IF. <laughs> Thank you. Kyle Crichton, I think you, or you think you, are related to Michael Crichton, perhaps? Uh, there's a possibility. I don't think we've done the uh, Ancestry.com thing to find out, but we've always kept it in our back pockets. <laughs> mm, just in case. Yeah. Yeah. Well, given the accuracy of Ancestry.com, it sounds like you got a 50-50 chance. <laughs> yes, that's probably right. <laughs> of either for real or for fake uh, becoming yeah. his. Uh, but I love that it's very fitting that to figure out if you're related to Michael Crichton, you can do a DNA test. Right. Yep. It's kind of right. amazing. I wonder if and I'll be made of dino DNA. DNA. Yeah. For an extra fee, Jeff Goldblum comes in and criticizes your test. Yeah. <laughs> Michael Crichton, author of. Jurassic Park, is that right? Jurassic mm -hmm. Park, yep. And uh, the Andromeda Strain and a million things oh, yeah. in between. Tons, Congo, etc. Yeah. Uh, you, documentary filmmaker Kyle Crichton, have a new documentary right now that you've been working on for quite a while, and you're doing a Kickstarter for it now. Mm -hmm. So tell us the title and what it is about real quick. Sure. So the film is called Leave Nice Tracks. We've been filming it for nearly four years, and it follows a group of individuals who partnered with uh, local and state governments to change backcountry skiing in the Northeast by creating sustainable and managed terrain. What that essentially means is that backcountry skiing, first off, is a different section of regular mountain resort skiing. It's You are on your own power. It's a little more eco-friendly we can call it you know you're not using electricity to go up a chair or anything like that it's all human powered for the long time in the northeast it was very um it was sort of the black eye of uh skiing right like no one it was shunned it was it was looked down upon because people were trimming trees illegally oh so these folks came about about probably around 2013 an idea to the united states forest service to say hey we want to make this legal we want to manage it we want to do it sustainably how can we get that going? It took them about three years to get their project uh, approved. Your if today is loosely inspired by your documentary. What the if? There were no trees. Mm, none at all. Whoa! Staying in the Michael Crichton slash Kyle Crichton zone. Let's say there's something happened. Probably global warming inspired. Mm -hmm. And also writer's room inspired. They just suddenly vanished. Oh, 
like the 100 or something. (laughs) Well, they died out. They died out. Actually, they died out, which is interesting because we can go through sort of an in-between phase. So as a backcountry expert and and a person who just thoroughly enjoys enthusiasts yeah thrives on on living and and uh, even more so the guys who you work with in the film really commit their lives to it what's your fear as th- th- let's say on the news you know suddenly there's news headlines um trees are dying all over the well, it doesn't even have to be all over the world. All over where you live, and it's probably going to yeah, grow. That's probably happening fine. in Vermont. In Vermont, yeah. yeah. I think my biggest fear would be no precipitation. As a backcountry snowboarder and skier, no snow means we can't slide down that fluffy stuff. And trees, as far as I understand, are important for that, right? Evapotranspiration, is that the word? Yeah, they're an important part of uh, taking water out of the soil and putting it into the atmosphere. Oh, I didn't realize that, that. So trees are integral even in rain. Yeah, the whole water cycle, right? So yeah. the, the rain makes the tree grow, and the tree helps the water keep going around and around. Yep. Fascinating. And so, Kyle, going even beyond, for instance, for those of us who don't ski or snowboard, yeah. Or even hike that much, although it is, I do appreciate the beauty and the importance. (laughs) But aside from it being, so the first thing might be a recreational kind of diminishment, which is already, which is happening for real. For instance, with global warming, there's far less snow and things like that. And that's why the guys in your film, uh, you know, have to do what they do. But either Kyle or Matt, what happens now? What what more serious thing comes after, uh, bummer, we can't go out skiing today? Oh, man. Yeah, so there's a bunch of good stuff we need to rely on trees for, right? I mean, they've been part of the ecosystem for hundreds of millions of years. Their contribution to the water cycle is essentially that, uh, the same as ours, which is that they breathe out water the same as we do. Huh. Oh, we breathe out water too. Yeah, right? Yeah. Um, it's a byproduct of the, the ATP cycle, right, that, that produces energy for our bodies, um, is leftover water, so our body needs to get rid of it, so trees need to do the same. And along with our, with us breathing out water, is, of course, we breathe out carbon dioxide, because that's a, uh, a waste product right. of, of the, the cycle. Now, trees do photosynthesis, and they, get it, they have a waste product, too, and, of course, that waste product is oxygen. Good oxygen. And it's, it's fortunate, or it, it ha- this is how the ecosystem evolved, that our waste product is their food in a way, and their waste product is our life support. Yeah, that's right. So it's it's kind of hard to remember sometimes, but um, oxygen is a terrible, terrible substance. It's intensely poisonous. It destroys everything it touches. It rusts metal. It breaks down rock. Um, <laughs> we like it, so it doesn't bother us. But, you know, when life first appears on Earth, it's of the photosynthetic variety, and oxygen is the waste product, right? They're just trying to get rid of the oxygen because it's nasty. What we're talking about there was microbes. Um, yes, yeah, so initially, right. And then, and then even complicated, life, complicated um, photosynthetic life forms. So it wasn't until they had pumped enough waste oxygen into the atmosphere that it made sense for aerobic 
critters like us to evolve in the first place. Are we talking about we're losing oxygen on the Earth? Yeah, that's right. So we would be breathing, we meaning aerobic organisms, um, not just us personally, is going to breathe in the oxygen. By aerobic, we mean Richard Simmons. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Meaning those critters that use oxygen in order to produce energy. So every animal, essentially. So so every animal is breathing in oxygen and breathing out carbon dioxide. So yeah, we'd suck oxygen out of the atmosphere pretty quickly. That would be an interesting calculation to do, sort of how long it would take. But of course, trees aren't the only things producing oxygen, right? They produce about a third of the oxygen on the planet. Still, if you had a third less oxygen... You would notice it. Yeah, you would be very unhappy. In fact, speaking of mountain climbing, for instance, Kyle, I don't know, have you been, now, the mountains of Vermont, I don't think would get you up into this altitude, but have you been on other mountains where the oxygen begins to deplete as you get higher? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in March of last year, I guess this year, this past March, I went on a trip to Silverton, Colorado, so I was about 13,500 feet or so. And you certainly notice it. You go to bend over just to tie your shoe or your ski boot or whatever, and you're sucking wind, <laughs> <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> and you get kind of dizzy. Yep, dizzy. Uh, the first day I was there, uh, you don't sleep very well either because you're at elevation. You know, so there's all sorts of things. Your body is pumping blood faster. Um, the air is thinner, so it's trying to work harder to pull in oxygen, and so you're essentially i guess a little more restless right that would be kind of the, the layman's way of explaining it yeah you can't go um, to sleep. so your first yeah. no yeah oh yeah we stayed up till three four in the morning probably doing other things but as well as like <laughs> oh my god we can't sleep and we had to be up to go on the mountain by 5 a.m oof yeah it's too early yeah <laughs> i've noticed having having cl- have climbed up uh not as a mountain climber but having gone uh, visiting places where you can go hiking at high altitudes the first thing I notice is you actually start to feel a little bit drunk or like yeah. you're on cough syrup or something like that. Mm-hmm. So is it possible that as the trees begin to disappear and we lose a source of oxygen on Earth, everybody starts to feel drunk? <laughs> Ooh. Um, yeah, actually, that's not a bad, uh, it's not a bad way to think about it. Is, um, essentially, everyone would get altitude sickness. Even at sea level. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know if New York City would be any different. <laughs> <laughs> what would we do? So first thing we would have to do is start storing oxygen, I guess. We would have to start to treat it like a precious resource, like like water is in many places. Yeah. So if I'm not wrong, this is that is kind of the premise of Spaceballs. <laughs> really? <laughs> Isn't that right? That they're running really? out of oxygen on the planet, so they're going to go steal it from oh, Druidia. Man. I remember this scene of um, uh, Mel Brooks huffing cans of air. <laughs> I regret. I confess, I have not seen Spaceballs other than in little clips on what? YouTube. Yeah, I really need to watch it. I need to watch. It. I, I I did hear recently they were talking about. Uh, I guess the fastest speed they can go is uh, like beyond ludicrous. Is mm-hmm. ludicrous speed plaid? Plaid. Yeah. <laughs> I believe they they have a product in the movie called like Perrier that's just like that's bottled right. air. <laughs> that's fantastic. Bottled <laughs> air. 
But yeah, but the problem is, you know, so you, you could imagine, you know, people in Brooklyn walking around with oxygen masks. But most of the critters on Earth that need oxygen to survive, we can't go around and strap oxygen masks on, right? You can't do it. Like fish need oxygen, right. okay? And that's in solution in the oceans. So it needs to be just loose in the air. So it gets into the water so they can breathe it. So we even if humans were okay, you know, we oxygenate our houses, we're going to get mass die-offs of everything else. Water has a third of, or has at least one thing of oxygen, mm-hmm. H2O and the O. Yep. And, and what happens now? Do you start to get, without oxygen, you don't get water. Um, that's right. But water is a pretty stable form. So it'll, the oxygen in water now will stay there unless we decide that's where we want to get our new oxygen from. In which case, there's a process called electrolysis, where you run an electrical current through water, and then you split that splits it into hydrogen and oxygen. If you took high school chemistry, you probably did this experiment, and you got to set fire to the hydrogen at the end. It's very exciting. And that's how that's what that's how we launch rockets. Many many kinds of rockets. Yeah, that's how you get your your rocket fuel. Yeah, yeah. rocket fuel. Yeah, actually, I think just like we have desalinization plants, it's extremely expensive. But in places where there's absolutely no water and they have to depend on the ocean. They take the salt out of that. We would be taking the oxygen out of the water too, no doubt. Actually, fortunately, we might as well, we would just say screw it. Let's just turn this all into rocket fuel and get the hell out of the, <laughs> hell off the planet. Yeah. Let's go to Mars. Now, global warming as well, right? For instance, with all the destruction in the Amazon that's happening with trees, the Amazon forest. Yeah. By the way, I have, <laughs> ironically, and all too often now have seen as I'm scrolling through, for instance, the New York Times app on my phone and reading the New York Times, you know, there are ads placed in there too. I have seen, it, as I'm scrolling up, I'll get to a point where on my screen at the same time, there's an ad for Amazon, the website, and a story about how the... The Amazon? <laughs> ...is being destroyed. <laughs> very, very oh, interesting. Lord. I suppose that's a pretty good summary of um, our civilization at the moment. That's right. Yeah. But... We know that trees are important for uh, global. H- how do trees fit into the global warming cycle? Because they yeah, take the so carbon they, dioxide, out. right? They help with. They, that's right. So they they suck carbon dioxide out, but so sort of on a large scale, they help with um, global warming. But there's also sort of a, a, a more straightforward effect, which is that um, they're dark and they absorb light, sunlight that comes in. Yes. Right. So, for instance, at, at high altitudes, the, the snow that we might go snowboarding on uh, tends to uh, reflect, it increases the albedo of the planet, we say. It sort of chucks the, the light back into the atmosphere and creates further warming, um, whereas the, the trees can absorb some of that. Yeah. So you get those so great goggle for- tans when you're out in the mount- mountains. <laughs> <laughs> now, Kyle, I know you, you've actually had, very, being a skier uh, and snowboarder, you've had visceral experiences of seeing radical changes have you not in in sort of the sure disappearing so what do you as someone who knows you know maybe grew up in the woods and on ski slopes and mountainsides seeing them one particular way what do you notice most dramatically um the winters start a lot later that's one of the biggest things i've noticed especially the Mm -hmm. east coast the west coast hasn't uh california has seen it a lot they've had 
very barren winters and other winters where they start getting snowed on in September and they get, I think this past winter, they had a snowpack of 257% beyond normal, which is amazing. So the earth kind of compensates for it, but you know, will that continue or not is the question that scientists are looking to find out. But yeah, the biggest thing I've noticed and it affected our film actually was winters either starting later or not starting at all. Not starting at all. Yeah, we started our film in October of 2015, hoping to film that winter. And I'd say Vermont, you know, probably had a quarter of what they normally have that winter, the 15, 16 winter. It was awful. You know, the resorts could open because they make their snow, which probably also contributes to, you know, climate change because they're mm-hmm. eating energy. Um, and where are they getting that from? Probably fossil fuel based power plants. But backcountry you can't you're relying on snow you need a couple feet of a base before you can even then rely on the powder snow on top of it wow and does it does it affect the um the look or the feel of the ground like is the foliage becoming is is the foliage dying because of this or is it actually growing more you notice different foliage like right now we're probably just about close to peak foliage season up there i think they start mid-october but you will have seasons mostly due to rain not snow where if they don't have a lot of rain over the summer the fall will be a lot less stunning as the uh what do they call them leaf peepers want them to be (laughs) um you know, and I think that this year we're going to have a probably, and this is by no scientific basis, probably a suboptimal peak foliage season. I think because there has not been a lot of rain in the later part of the summer. I got to say, growing up, I never, um, I wasn't often in New England, and I never would have been there during peak fall or whatever. So I heard about it. I heard it was beautiful. It sounded, oh, it sounds nice. But you know, I grew up in Maryland, and. Uh, we had nice trees, and even in New York, I'd be like, oh, you can see, you can go to Central Park, and you can see fall. Yeah. But one time I was actually driving through, and I happened to be literally like on the peak week, uh, peak <laughs> time or something. I I could not believe mm-hmm. the the sense of being just surrounded by such vivid colors. It's stunning. Yeah, if you're not used to them, they're pretty extraordinary. Totally amazing. Now, yeah. no trees, no leaf peepers, no, no, definitely no um, <clears throat> things. And and one thing that, that begins to happen is with the trees gone, avalanches. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So trees do a lot of erosion control generally, mm-hmm. of uh, keeping soil and rocks where they where they should be. Um, so I don't know. Kyle's our avalanche expert. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean. Y- Matt's got it right. You know, when trees are no longer exist, the trees do not exist. Erosion, landslides, uh, rock slides, and then with winter, avalanches. One of the biggest reasons why places like Vermont and New Hampshire aren't known for avalanches but are known for their skiing is because of the trees. The trees hold that snow in. Um, there are certainly pitches that are between, you know, 35 and 45 degrees. I think that's around the the degree that avalanches kind of are triggered. I think it's like 74% of human triggered avalanches are on slopes between 34 and 45. Interesting. Okay. Anything beyond the 45 degree angle 
it's kind of just going to naturally slide eventually if depending on what type of snow it is. But right. So if you looked at say, um, Stowe in Vermont, Stowe mountain, that's very tree heavy. If all those trees are gone, a lot of that snow would not stay on top. And then if you have someone going and walking across it and they crack it and they trigger a crown line at the top of the avalanche, it's going to slide. There's no trees to hold it. I've certainly been caught in little tiny slides in trees, but you're saved because you're like, oh, there's a tree in front of me. The snow stopped before it became anything crazy. They call those sloughs, I think. Right, like the trees kind of break it up. That's interesting because I, yeah. I never thought about that, that. The reason we hear about avalanches, uh, the dramatic avalanches we hear about are in, above the tree line on Everest oh. or in the Rockies yep. or something like that. Above the tree line. Um, and a lot of them... Uh, I think they happen in what they call conditions considerable, which is like a, so when you were to look up like the Colorado avalanche safety uh, board or whatever they call it, they'll tell you different levels, you know, moderate, considerable, extreme, you know, and considerable, they say like, take caution, do not go out. If you can, a lot of people are hungry to get that snow, that fresh powder and they go out considerable is nothing. Uh And it's about 40 something, 46% of, avalanches happen in considerable conditions. Ooh, good to know. Mm. Maybe they need All a right. better word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that doesn't sound quite ominous enough, does it? It doesn't, yeah. no. Well, it's like it's, it, it, going to Florida every summer, my family lived down there, and uh, you get red flag days at the beach, and after a while, you hear that so often, it's like, ah, red flag day, you know, which usually means there's some <laughs> jellyfish or a, a strong a riptide and things like that. In California, then, uh, when I moved out there, you get red flag days because the place is about to burn. <laughs> the whole place is a tinderbox. Seriously. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, of course, we, we said without trees, we're going to have, and there's less water in the atmosphere. So actually, I'm guessing, interestingly, we get less snow. Yeah. But mm-hmm. there's going to be an interim period where uh, until, until the, when the trees first go, you're going to get avalanches. To the yeah. th- right before the snow yeah. kind of yeah. dwindles. And um, you could have, uh, like, for instance, Kyle, out in Colorado, they've had entire towns or, or avalanches have come down into towns. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they um, just, when I was up there in March, they almost shut down the backcountry area that we were going to because they were worried. I think avalanches last, this past winter, Colorado had a historic amount of avalanches. It broke records of some sort. When we drove through, we were driving through essentially tunnels of avalanche debris, which wasn't just snow. You see trees, you see rocks, uh, probably as high as 25, 30 feet. And they they come in with crazy excavators and they just dig it out. And, and, you know, but um, yeah. Have you ever been near an avalanche? Like, what is it like when it's... I, the, the first time actually was this winter. I had been, I went to this place called Silverton Mountain Resort. It's a ski resort specifically for backcountry snowboarding or skiing, both. They take you on a chair about a thousand feet up and the rest is all hike terrain. And so while you're up there, you'll hear dynamite explosions. (laughs) So you'll hear, oh yeah, it's very, it's ominous, but really, really cool. Um, (laughs) So you'll be up there and you'll just hear like a boom and then you'll just hear, and it gets a little louder and that's the snow sliding. Hmm. And then they'll open the ropes when they feel like it's safe. And then the craziest thing is you'll ski past a giant ditch 
where the dynamite exploded. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that also probably contributing to global warming. A little bit. Oh, it has to of some sort. A little yeah. bit. Then we get mudslides. Like, so once, if we don't yeah. get snow anymore, you're also, if, but the tree's gone. You get mudslides. For instance, California has been having mudslides like crazy. Oh, it's always yeah. always had them, but like lately, it's been insane because of fires, right? Yeah. That the fires have destroyed. Actually, oh, speaking about there being no trees, fire is obviously one way that huge areas of trees can be trees um, yeah. destroyed. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you have um, people who, like, for instance, with our film, the folks decide to create this backcountry ski area was illegal tree cutting, right? People going into the woods and just cutting willy-nilly. Uh, and there was an instance of a story up in Jay, Vermont, where these two guys cut a massive swath to the point where if you look on Google Maps now or Google Earth, you will see a huge scar on a mountain called Big Jay, just about 30 miles south of Canada. And it is so big that it, ha- it probably, if it hasn't already, will cause some landslides. Huh. And it was just two guys. Was it land they owned? No. It was, oh, they got arrested. Yeah, they were arrested. They were tried. Uh, I don't know what their sentencing was, but they, they got in big trouble. And a lot of this backcountry movement that's been going on since then, that was about 2007, if I'm not mistaken, uh, has been a response to those people because backcountry tree cutting in the Northeast is something that has been happening, but never went to that level. But the biggest concern for, say, the state forest or the United States Forest Service was, A, cutting trees down will will obviously hurt their monetary things because the Forest Service does lease out land for silviculturists, for people that cut trees down, for lumber. And then B, anything ecologically, like you're, you're ruining the environment for the animals, you're causing any sorts of erosion and landslides, and then... God forbid somebody cuts down an entire state forest in Vermont, you could cause um, environmental issues like, I don't think it'd be that bad, but erosion and maybe not poisoning the water so much. That would be probably when the trees disappear completely, but you know, they are ruining the environment. It would, it would completely decimate the forest to the point where the trees around that scar would react probably negatively to it. Actually, when you talk about runoff, for instance, from, from fields, farmers fields or whatever the no trees is going to make that even uh, quicker and yeah. probably worse mm-hmm. now I, I just thought of something else so there's lots of animals that live in trees lots of them yep a lot of habitats going to get destroyed but in the interim i i just had a vision of like a planet of the apes situation <laughs> where for instance if this is happening in a place where there are primates that live in trees they're all, and the trees are gone, but the primates are still around. They're going to be running around on land and could conceivably become a challenge to the human race. Uh, if they survive long enough, yeah, could be. You know, that's going to be a, a million years time scale. Uh, so I wouldn't worry about that right away. And they're going to have to become anaerobic. Is that right? Living on. Well, I don't know if there's, I don't know if we've ever seen anything go from aerobic to anaerobic in terms of evolution. That's a, that's a pretty major change of one's biochemistry. It's not like, not like learning how to walk upright. Yeah, yeah it's good for a future. <laughs> what, sorry, and what anaerobic, what do they breathe? 
Uh, well, there's a bunch of different possibilities. So carbon dioxide is one. Sometimes they just extract uh, energy directly from their environment, like um, thermophilic bacteria, for instance. Ooh, um, cool. They don't need oxygen because they just suck the energy right out. So actually, going now going forward in that fast-forward uh, mode that we like to do as we get towards the end of, of an if, we if humans can't make it or we just leave, then... The, as always with these scenarios, the planet doesn't care. The planet doesn't, <laughs> right? It's like the, just the environment changes and life finds a way. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it'll be one of the great mass extinctions, certainly. Um, but some critters will adapt to a lower oxygen environment. And uh, who knows? Maybe some species will rebound because humans won't be around stomping on them. That That's what I mean. Like, like, there would be we had the the is it the cambrian explosion or the, there was a huge explosion of oxygen breathing life right mm-hmm. on right. earth and with everything reversed oxygen gone heavy carbon dioxide uh, environment no trees all kinds of things that live underground that will are able to thrive on these kinds of environments would flourish I would think still yeah. tons of energy from the sun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would be it would be a very different looking planet. Like maybe like Venus. Um well, if Venus had critters, yeah. See, it probably did and they all skied too much. <laughs> and they didn't learn sustainability and they destroyed all their mountains. Now, in the meantime, there are Kyle getting back to the real earth in our present day uh as people like you and 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 in people can learn from your film and and people who are environmentally active around the planet see actual things like this happening whether it's as singular as like trees getting wiped out in the amazon on mass or simply global warming slowly kind of baking the planet they're getting scared, right? So what what kinds of things can people do to um, help oh. to push back against this horrific scenario that we just outlined? If you relate it to outdoor recreation, say in the winter, you could do more human-powered skiing and snowboarding, backcountry. That'd be one way. I think that it'd take a lot to offset the the carbon pollution that we put out, but that's one way. Uh, bike commuting is a great one. I love that a lot of people in the city do that, and it's one way that I always got to and from work was on my bike. Well, it's interesting It's, it's interesting to think about turning, like, it, uh, in recreation mode, I always think about, oh, well, I'm appreciating nature, and that's a good thing, and, and yeah. I'll go back and, you know, uh, appreciate more and stuff like that. But in fact, many, many, many people don't realize... <laughs> That in appreciating that nature, they actually are, can be damaging it. Yeah, and that's uh, that's a real problem. You know, people go on eco tours, um, not yeah. realizing, you know, that their planes their plane trip puts lots of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, and going on the hikes tramples down delicate areas. Yes, yes. Stick to stick to the path that's on the hiking trails. Don't go into the woods willy nilly. Leave no trace. Right. Play on, mm-hmm. uh, like our film's yeah. name is Leave Nice Tracks, so it's a play on Leave No Trace. 
it's leave nothing but tracks that we change to leave nice trace or leave nice tracks. So leave no traces, the the principles of outdoor recreation, which is if you bring trash or you bring any sort of food, take trash with you. Leave the woods the way, the way you saw them. Walk on the path. I know you want to be like Robert uh, Robert Frost, right? And take the path not taken, but like take the path that they created. It's there for a reason to not hurt the environment that you're so uh, happily walking through. Of all their endeavors, for, say again the name of the group that you follow and what is the most ambitious, sure. the biggest sort of challenge that they've taken on? So the group is called the Rochester Randolph Area Sports Trail Alliance, or RASTA for short, um, which they have a lot of fun jokes about. And I'd say their biggest challenge is just, um, there's a couple. The first one was really just going at the United States Forest Service pace, right? Like, essentially going to them with this project and saying, we want to make it. And they're like, well, we got to go through all the checklists. We got to do this, 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 and this. So, and they wanted to make, it. what was it that they were making? Trails? They were trying to make uh, backcountry ski zones on public land, on this area called the Brandon Gap, uh, which is part just connected to the Long Trail uh, in Vermont. And backcountry means basically you do as little as possible to change the environment. Yeah, if, right? if you're doing true backcountry skiing like they do out west, you don't touch anything. You're just skiing through what's already there, you know. The Northeast does have that. People do that. They kind of bushwhack in a sense. You know, they're always holding their ski poles to make sure they don't get smacked in the face by a tree. <laughs> <laughs> but this was supposed to be a little little sort of bridge the gap between resort-based skiing and true backcountry. They like to call it managed backcountry skiing, uh, uh-huh, uh-huh. which a lot of people toss their hand, hands up in the air and say that's not true backcountry skiing. But um, I've done it. I've obviously been filming it for four years. It's it's pretty darn backcountry. You are out there in the middle of nowhere, no phone service, and if you get hurt, which I actually did, I broke my knee on one trip. Um, you have to, you know, you have to figure out how to survive. It's it's right off the highway, yes, but you're still hiking upwards of two to three hours into the woods in the winter. Ugh. Cool. What? What's? What's? What is like? Oh, yeah, they're doing all kinds of different things. So some of the things are political. Some might be protesting. Some might be lobbying. Things like that. But but they're also they're physically out there. Yes. And what are yes. they doing? So they go out in the woods in the summer, mostly early fall, and they trim it down. They have a forester and a trail builder who team up and they walk through and they say, "This tree is invasive. This is a dead tree." that's a great tree, leave it. And they plan out their routes or their ski. They don't really call them ski trails. They call them zones. They plan out their zones by flagging them with different colors and saying, like I said, invasive, dead, etc. They have a certain height limit that they're allowed to cut from. So if a tree is about three feet tall, it's okay to cut. But if there's a big giant 30 foot tree, they're not going to cut it because they're not looking to ruin the canopy. Leaving the canopy is the biggest factor. If they leave the canopy, we could abandon this, so to speak, and 50 to 100 years from now, the forest will be mostly grown back the way it was before we cut it. Or so the so we're led to believe by the foresters. Um, so Because otherwise, if we didn't, it would transition from one type of forest to another, which I believe hardwood to softwood. Which is like when you see like a mountain like Killington Mountain or, or anywhere, you see those big giant scars... They do have people mowing them and cleaning them up over the off season, but even if they didn't, that scar would more than likely be there for hundreds of years. Wow. Wow. 
what is your, uh, well, I want to end on your biggest dystopian vision. <laughs> what is it? What is your, your greatest fear of how these things could turn out? Huh? So it's, like, uh, it's, it's 2049 just mm-hmm. happens to be 2049, which is the same as the Blade Runner sequel. Right. Coincidence. <laughs> you step out of your house and are going to go to the same place as you went when you were young back in 2019. And yet, what do you see? What's the difference between those two images? Probably no snow, no trees would be very, very disheartening and sad. My biggest fear is that we turn into a giant metropolis coast on the East Coast and everything's connected like one big megapolis, we'll call it. And there's no nature. And, you know, I I was just reading a study, and I've seen these studies before, that nature is a big factor in your uh, psychological health, your mental health. Mm -hmm. You know, going and walking in the woods for an hour will probably treat, not depression, but your sadness or whatever for a little while. And it's proven. I'm a, I'm a person who does it. And, you know, I, I moved to the Hudson Valley, New York, just so I could be in the woods. And it's, it's great. If we don't have that, I see a lot of people becoming more stressed, their cortisol levels rising, et cetera. And God, who knows wars, all sorts of bad things. It's, I think we, we certainly need nature. By not having it, we will look a lot like Blade Runner 2049, which probably is not a good thing. <laughs> probably not. Yeah. That's you know, beautiful. All the, the barren landscapes. Yeah, yeah. That is, uh, and, and not to mention the rogue robots running around and the children slaves and, and all these other horrible things. Oh, and the, just the identity crisis of the robots. That's, you know, uh, the replicants. Yeah. That's, that's difficult enough. That was a beautiful vision, and I, I just completely pooped on it. So, um, uh, I love that the, the appreciation for nature. You see, that's yeah. that's really great. And no snowboarding. Fun. But yeah. no snowboarding. <laughs> uh, how can you people have to do it in VR? Right. So, so, so that's partly, you know, kind of what you just outlined there. That's sort of yes. the spirit behind the film. And how yes. can people help the film? You have a Kickstarter going now, and when does that end? So we have a Kickstarter. You could probably just search for us on Google, just search Leave Nice Tracks, and it is actually one of the first hits that comes up, as far as I remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It is. It is the second search, if you search Leave Nice Tracks, the second result. And it ends on October 17th. We are looking for, I forget how much, 12500 which we've gotten, and we're going to set some stretch goals very soon. And right. we would love extra because we're looking to put the film on tour we're looking to bring it to small communities such as rochester and randolph in vermont to hopefully inspire them to get outside and create their own recreational opportunities within their towns in any way possible and uh we also have a release date for the film oh you cool. do. what is that yep the first day it will be available publicly will be in rochester vermont where we based it on november 7th at a event called the vermont backcountry forum uh we'll be touring it afterwards at the backcountry film festival which starts in boise idaho cool all right so you'll just uh, and, and to make it clear to everyone who's listening that the a big part of the kickstarter now is where the film is is coming towards an end, it's being finished, it's going to get released. But the huge thing is with documentaries, as I can certainly attest to as well, and Kyle knows, 
making the film is only half the battle. Right. The, getting the film out there, as we know, uh, is really important. And yeah. any tiny bit you, you or, or large bit you can contribute to their Kickstarter will help Got people. Great rewards. Yeah. And right. There's all kinds of fun things you can get uh, as a reward uh, for making a donation. Is going to help. The, really, that film needs to get out there and be seen as many places as possible to inspire people to save the planet. Yeah, that would be nice. and have fun doing it you will see a lot of great footage of people skiing uh in slow motion and just great it's 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 a fun story and and the people are very inspiring they do this in their own time they volunteer they're all mothers and fathers and sons and daughters and have full-time jobs and they still you know bust their butts to make this for for everyone to enjoy it's free to go to you don't have to pay for it nice that's fantastic yeah i love that um Leave Nice Tracks. It's on kickstarter.com right now. Kyle Crichton, spelled C-R-I-C-H-T-O-N. Where else can people find you, Kyle? Uh, you can find us on Instagram. It's instagram.com slash leave nice tracks and Facebook, facebook.com slash leave nice tracks. Cool. Uh, we do have a website. It's leave nice tracks.com. That'll get you to all of our social media pages and our contact. If you have any questions, if you want to uh, donate, definitely go to the Kickstarter website. Right on. And Kyle, in gratitude, you for saving the planet, for doing your part, <laughs> and for and for appearing on this program. You have now risen to mega ifer status. It's right. unprecedented. This has never <laughs> happened before. Unprecedented. Surely a sign of global warming. And oh, <laughs> <laughs> you will receive a finger puppet. Yay. Awesome. Of a del- another finger finger puppet number three, the triple play you can, of a delightful uh, a finger puppet of a delightful scientist or science fiction character. I might have to uh, complete my uh, my enterprise uh, team. Right, you will have a full crew like soon enough. And that comes from philosophersguild.com, our friends at the Unemployed Philosophers Guild, where they make smart, funny gifts for smart, funny people. And all kinds of hilarious toys and for your smart friends. And uh, don't go to Hallmark. You know, that stuff is... It's yeah, that's not fun. Not so smart. It's cute, but not clever. Not as clever. Philosophersguild.com. And everyone listening, by the way, you can get 10% off by using the coupon code WTIF on anything in the store. Holidays are coming up. Eh, still a little ways away, but... Uh, yeah, Rosh Hashanah. Rush again. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> uh, yes, and I know Kyle appreciates that as well. We are both. Hey, oh, yeah. <laughs> we are currently working on a film about a very fascinating uh, radical rabbi. And so, yeah, get those Rush Hashanah gifts <laughs> on uh, philosophersguild.com. Matt, anything coming up for you? Uh, not quite at the moment. All right. Talk about your book for a second Einstein's War How Relativity Triumphed Over the Vicious Nationalism of World War I available to those who enjoy stories about science and Einstein and people fighting back against war and nationalism. Fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, I'm reading it currently, actually. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, I can attest to it being a very, very good read. I love it. Nice. Thanks, man. Great read, I'll call it. Right on. Einstein's War by Matt Stanley. Available everywhere. Great books are sold. You can find all our previous episodes, if you're new to the show, 
uh, whatthef.com. You can access all our previous episodes. I've been working on adding tags to all of them. So there's all kinds of uh, things there. If you, whatever you're interested in, click on that word cosmology, go back, uh, black holes, go, oh. uh, whales, go. <laughs> Takes you right to those episodes. And if you have not subscribed, do so on whatever device or podcast service you are using. There's no word. I got to come up with a better podcatcher, but that seems very inside baseball. Uh, wh- <laughs> whatever you're doing, however you're hearing us, subscribe so it shows up automatically. You don't have to hunt it down like you may have done this time. And lastly, um, I ask again, those of you who enjoy the show, we're really trying to grow the audience. You've noticed we've been getting uh, really amazing uh, guests. I feel like we're stepping up our game and our guests. Yep. And a huge thing that helps us do that is if you leave reviews. That helps us grow the show and help more people find out about it. Uh, if you're listening to Overcast, the podcatcher, which is mine, my favorite one of choice, uh, from Marco Armit. By the way, I don't know if you know, on uh, you're listening to an episode right now, right there, there's a gold star. You can click and say, I enjoyed this. And that really helps our, um, get our visibility there. It's one of the few podcatchers that uh, recommends shows to people who are listening as well. Kyle, now, if you would join us, I know you're familiar with our ritual of looking towards the future in which the death of all the trees is merely one of many, (laughs) one of many things, (laughs) untold horrors. In fact, the more ifs there are, the more erosion occurs. And that brings even, it's, it's an avalanche of ifs. Is what I'm saying. Ooh, perfect. So you used an expression. What is it? There's a crown line. The crown line's the top of an av- or at the the crack of the avalanche. Right. Okay. So help us set off some dynamite <laughs> to relieve the pressure on this on this massive cliff of ifs that is looming just above our little studio by screaming the name of the show very slowly. And you listening out there, you're in your car, you're in anything but a library, uh, (laughs) join us as well. (laughs) As we scream to the universe, the name of the show, which is... What What the... the...